glad you are all here today, and I am glad to be here as well. This morning, as we continue on, we are still in the book of Hebrews, and I'm getting excited because I'm almost at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, and there's only 13 chapters, so I, for the first time, can actually see the light at the end of the tunnel of finishing the life's quest through Hebrews. But this morning, we find ourselves coming to a section which is a picturesque description of privileges that we have in Christ. And it's within a context trying to encourage us as believers to press on. We are going to be covering texts found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. So if you're not already in Hebrews at verse 18, go ahead and turn there. And we are at a portion of the book, again, that is dealing with practical life. We came out of chapter 11, this great hall of faith, which followed a long theological section telling us about the greatness of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we saw these examples of people who had lived by faith, and now we're called to emulate that faith and also for us to live by faith no matter what we face, no matter what we endure. We're supposed to lay aside sin. We're supposed to lay aside anything. And I think that would probably include football as I'm convicted as I'm talking. <laughs> That would hinder us from pursuing Christ with wholehearted devotion. Anything that would take our eyes off the ultimate prize, we're supposed to set aside. And as we've gotten into chapter 12, there's a lot of practical instruction about how to live out the theology that's already been taught. Theology is there. The examples of the Old Testament saints are there. Now, practically speaking, we have to put into practice what we have learned. And that involves a lot of different things. And quite often, when we think about the practical application of theology, we want to do something, and that's good. We're supposed to be doers of the word, and quite often we think of that in the context of perhaps meeting a brother or sister's physical need. Maybe somebody needs a meal. Maybe somebody needs a ride. Maybe somebody needs to be prayed with. Maybe we need to visit somebody in the hospital. And all those are wonderful things. I pray that we would all continue to do this. Other times, we think of it as, well, we need to not sin so we won't get angry or we won't do these things or we won't practice drunkenness and on and on and so we we think of very very tangible things that we should do or not do but sometimes we have to think on a different level in fact the scriptures sometimes tell us that what we do or don't do involves our mind how we view life the perspective that we have on everything going on around us And in this context, while reflection isn't something that we instinctively do because we want to be busy, we want to go, the text we're dealing with this morning really is calling us to ponder the privileges that we have in Christ. So we're challenged to think this morning, but we're challenged to think in a specific way for a specific purpose so that we will not be distracted from our ultimate calling to pursue Jesus Christ focus of all of Hebrews is to encourage true believers to press on. Don't give up. Don't turn back. Don't turn away. There's no other avenue. The original hearers were Jewish. Some of them thought, maybe I'll go back to the Old Testament rituals, the Old Testament covenant, the way things were done, and I'll just add Jesus to it. And the whole book of Hebrews obliterates that argument says, look, you don't add anything to Jesus. He's all you need. He's the only high priest. He's the only sacrifice. Whatever the purposes of the Old Covenant were, everything has been 
fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You don't need anything else. Salvation is never found in the law or complying with rules. Salvation is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as the writer continues to develop an argument, and as we come to this portion of Scripture, which is found in verses 18 through verse 24, the writer, in continuing on this theme, is going to paint for us a contrast of what was and what is. A contrast of what used to be and yet what is our present reality. Now, that contrast had a little bit of a different historical context for the immediate hearers because they were Jewish and some of them wanted to go back to the old ways. But it has applicability to us as well. I'm going to be covering these verses this morning. I'm going to try and cover this entire section and I'm not going to be dissecting it in quite as minute detail as I normally do. I'm going to be going to a lot of cross references in the Old Testament. I'm going to be summarizing some things. But really, the writer is trying to paint a picture for us. And so I'm going to follow the writer's lead, and I'm going to paint that picture. And the picture really has two parts. And as I try and process, I always think through when I'm teaching a text, what's the point? Why does God have this in the Bible? And I think in this context, this is given to us so that we can rejoice and stand firm in our faith. So that we can recognize our present possession and not be distracted by anything that used to be. And so I've just broken this down in a simple outline, which I think flows from the picture of the text. Two reasons to rejoice and stand firm in your faith. Two reasons to rejoice and stand firm in your faith. And one of the reasons might be viewed as negative and one as positive, but they fit together. And the first reason is this, and I'll have to develop this, but it's the terrifying distance of the old covenant. The terrifying distance of the old covenant. And that sounds a little bit like a misnomer, and I will develop this a little bit more. But I'm talking about the context of a follower of God and God. Follow along with me. I'm actually going to read verses 18 to 21 as an entirety. It says this, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind... And to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. There's a lot of imagery tied up here, and it's imagery that we need to understand to give us an appreciation for what we don't have. What do I mean by that? Look at the first words. For you have not come. In other words, the writer is making it clear. This isn't your experience. This isn't what you face. The writer is saying that what follows, what I'm about to describe, and it is a terrifying picture. This isn't what you have. But he wants to remind them of an incident from the old covenant in the old days when God was interacting with his chosen people. For us, the picture may be familiar if you've been in church a long time and heard a lot of teaching. It may not be familiar if you're relatively new in the faith. I know years ago when I was saved, there was so much that every time the, the preacher opened up the Bible and preached, I'm like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. I had no idea. 
If that's your experience, don't be bothered by that. Everybody's got to learn. We've all got to grow. But the original hearers of this would have immediately been tuned in because of their Jewish background and would have known specifically what was being referenced. The writer is painting a visual picture. And as I was processing this, I was thinking in our world, generally a picture like this is painted in a movie. Great special effects, great scenery. You can almost picture the giant screen. And then there's also a soundtrack. The music is amazing if you watch movies and you turn the sound off. It's a whole different picture. But the writer of Hebrews is actually using a visual component and a sound component. So he starts out in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and the whirlwind. Now, in the New American Standard, which I read from, the, the word a mountain is implied. It's, an, a, prop, it's a proper um, implication. That is the meaning of the text. But there's something about this mountain that is dramatic. It can't be touched. It's a blazing fire. It's off limits. Almost a sense of foreboding. There's darkness and gloom and a whirlwind. Some versions say a tempest. It's hard because our class bridges gaps, and I don't know what movies resonate with all of us when I'm trying to do this. There's a scene in the, in the Lord of the Rings movies, the, the Tolkien books and the movies, where you see a mountain in the distance, and there's glow of fire, but there's also clouds around it, and it looks very intimidating. Something like that is in view, except it's not Hollywood, it's real. So you got this visual picture. You haven't come to this kind of mountain, this kind of mountain that you could touch, that you see the darkness and gloom, and yet in the midst of darkness and gloom, there's a blazing fire. The visual idea would be striking if we were standing at the foot of this mountain. But there's a soundtrack that goes with it. Verse 19. And to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. This is not a trumpet like what is played on a Sunday morning in our orchestra. This is a picture of like a battle trumpet or battle horn. A king and his army, perhaps. An unbelievably loud announcement that something is about to happen of a stupendous nature and the sound is getting louder and louder and building. And with this astonishing sound of a horn, you hear some type of voice that is terror, terrifying. Such that the people who are standing there and they're hearing these sounds and they're seeing this image. You could almost picture them with their hands over their ears saying, please make it stop. Please make it stop. So where's all this imagery come from? It's not Hollywood. It's a real picture of a real event that actually happened on this earth. And again, it's a reference to an Old Testament account that would have been very Familiar to the original Jewish hearers, it may be familiar to some of us, but it has to do with an Old Testament account 
where Moses and the people of Israel were called into God's presence by God. Now, from the nature of the text, there's no way that I can read all of the Old Testament scriptures that describe this event. I'm going to summarize them. I'm going to read some of them. I'm going to reference you to some of them. But if you wanted to read these specific texts in more detail where all this imagery comes from, you would find it, for example, in Exodus 19 and 20, Deuteronomy 4. You could go back farther in Exodus and get more history about the historical event. But I'm just going to summarize for you and you can go on your own and verify whether what I'm telling you is accurate. I pray that it is. And we have to see something of the picture of Israel at the Exodus. It's a nation that had been in bondage 400 years. If we're familiar with the story, God used Moses and called Moses when he was 80 years old to go and lead his people out of captivity. And as God called Moses to go and as God worked out the process to free the Israelites... The generation of Israelites that were slaves at the time of the Exodus saw unbelievable things. I think sometimes the astounding nature of the ten plagues that were sent on Egypt kind of escape us. Particularly if you've read them so many times, you lose something because they're so familiar they don't seem terrifying. But they saw amazing miracles. Water turned into blood and insects everywhere and animals and even the death of all the firstborn of Egypt and unbelievable darkness and all kinds of things that we can't even fathom, they saw miracles that we couldn't comprehend. And as a result of those miracles and by God's choosing of Moses, the people were freed for the first time. This generation didn't know what freedom was. Their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their great-great-grandparents had all been slaves. Nobody knew what freedom was. And they were led out of Egypt. And even in that context, God did a miraculous thing because he parted the sea for them to walk through on dry land. And then the sea fell on the entire army of Pharaoh, wiping out what was one of the most powerful human armies of that time. And the Israelites were safe. And shortly after they were freed, God met with his people. In Exodus 19.1, we read this. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. So now we're at the point, the mountain. So it's only three months after they had been freed. Again, they had witnessed many miracles. But this is the geography for the account that we're reading about in Hebrews. The nation of Israel is gathered there. That's the mountain implied in Hebrews 12, 18. And at this mountain, God interacted with Moses and his people. This was the time when the Ten Commandments were given. This is the time. Happy birthday, Steve. This is the time 
when the people of God were going to find out what the covenant of God required of them. And so Moses was given instruction by God. And God said, if you'll obey me, you'll be blessed. And Moses went and he took the word to the people. I'm always fascinated by the people's response. In verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And now we get to a little bit closer to our picture of majesty and awe and terror. Because when Moses brought this report back, and he wasn't telling God anything God didn't know, God understood. And God knew that even though the people were saying, all that you say will do, their whole history was going to be the opposite. But in verse 9, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So God is going to come. The people are prepare themselves and they're going to come in front of that mountain and they're going to have an encounter with God. But it's not an encounter like what is our popular culture encounter about God. God is really not much more than a, a, a little bit more powerful Santa Claus or a kindly grandfather. God laid out requirements for this encounter and God said, if you don't follow these requirements, there are consequences. Verse 12, still in Exodus. You shall set bounds for all the people around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. They were going to have a dangerous encounter with God. Such that if you touch the mountain, somebody had to kill you from a distance. These were serious circumstances. Couldn't help but think of the number of times our little dog has gotten away from the house and run off. Your animal runs off there and touches the mountain, your animal's dead. This mountain was dangerous for anyone. You could almost have this picture. You're going to come close to God, but if you get too close, you die. Period. No court of appeal. It's done. Then we get to verse 16, which is really capturing in Exodus 19. This is really capturing the imagery that we are dealing with. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. 
As I tried to picture that, I could only think passing out with fear. <laughs> to be standing at the foot of a mountain like that, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's a thick cloud... And you've got this sound of this trumpet getting louder and louder along with the thunder. And the mountain looks like a furnace. You've got to be wondering, is this a volcano? What's going to happen here? And not only that, it sounds like it literally was like an earthquake where the ground is shaking. And the people were terrified. They were trembling. Their knees were knocking. And if we were there, we would have been the same way. Moses brought the people right up to the edge where God said, bring them. Knowing that they could go farther. And if they did, they're dead. And I can't picture this building crescendo of sound that's getting louder and louder. And the visual imagery and the ground is shaking and everybody is scared to death, and no doubt people were crying and whimpering. And then in the midst of that, God Himself spoke, and it was thunder. And this wasn't a movie. This was real life. This was their experience. This was God's people going before their God who had just liberated them. And they were astonished. They were terrified. I mean, this is when Moses got the Ten Commandments. The people were supposed to stay there. And they were standing and waiting, and they were as close as it was possible to get to God, as close as God wanted them to get, and they didn't want any part of it. And if you go to Exodus chapter 20, as it plays this out, you see the phraseology of the fact that they just wanted it to stop. Verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. I can't even comprehend it. But they were so terrified that they were just begging with Moses, make it stop. Look, Moses, you be the mouthpiece of God. We can't handle God's voice. We, we can't listen anymore. We're already scared to death. Coming back now to Hebrews, this is what we've just heard described in verses 18 to 20. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And the writer of Hebrews takes this whole imagery and this whole picture a little bit further. He includes information that isn't specifically included in Exodus 19 and 20, but we know through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it's an accurate understanding of what was going on. Recognize that in the midst of the people of Israel standing at the mountain, Moses was interacting with God on an even more personal level. And at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, Moses was recognized as a revered figure. Hebrews chapter I can't remember if it's chapter 2 or chapter 3, forgive me, deals with the life of Moses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. The contrast between Moses, who was truly 
a righteous man in the context and God. And then Moses is again alluded to in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 21 shows you something about that terrifying incident with God from Moses' perspective. Hebrews 12, 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Throughout the entire encounter, no one was closer to God than Moses. And according to this, and according to what we could probably glean from other texts in Deuteronomy 9 and Deuteronomy 4, Moses was not immune to the terror of the circumstance. Again, it's a frightening picture. If any one of us was there, we would have been terrified. If God came down and said to Pastor Steve, Steve, gather the people next week. We're going to gather out in the parking lot. I want the entire church out there. I want you to be in the parking lot. I'm going to come talk to you, Steve. But don't have the people touch the pond. Be standing by the pond. Don't touch it. And if all of a sudden the world erupted like that with lightning and thunder, and there's no protection... And the ground is shaking and there's clouds all around and the sounds are getting louder and louder. Every one of us would be crying and begging, make it stop. Knowing that if we ran and we ran in the wrong direction, we'd be dead on the spot. It is a frightening, terrifying picture. You could almost hear the tears, the screams of anguish. Now, that's such a frightening picture, and yet the beauty of it is that's not our reality. That will never happen. If you remember, the beginning of verse 18 says, For you have not come to this. He's calling to their mind all of the terror and horror of an encounter with the living God and saying, That's not your experience. We can all breathe a sigh of relief. We can all praise the Lord because as terrifying as that encounter with God was, that's never the encounter for a New Testament believer in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That was not the word given to the nation of Israel. They weren't thinking of drawing near to the throne of grace. They were thinking of running from the presence of God. Unlike that picture of terror and distance and be close but not too close. He's saying none of that is your reality in Christ. You can almost picture him talking to his original hearers and saying, do you really want to go back to that view of God? Not that that wasn't God, that is God. What he's saying is, you want the old covenant? You want to go back to Judaism? That's how they encountered God. Even the Holy of Holies, one day out of the year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and if he didn't go in, he died. God was dangerous. God was deadly. Mind you, he's still dangerous and deadly if you don't know Christ. But remember, this is encouragement to us as believers to those who recognize our sinfulness, who have, who have said, Lord, we don't have anything to offer. And what he's doing is he's telling them, if you're clothed in the blood of Christ, that's never your experience. You're never to be terrified. That terrifying distance of the old covenant is not your experience. 
And that really points to the second part of this. He painted a picture of terrifying distance under the Old Covenant. And now the second point, the second reason to rejoice and stand firm in your faith is there is a comforting intimacy of the New Covenant. The comforting intimacy of the New Covenant. And again, this all has to do with how God interacts with His chosen people. And verse 22 uses a word that for us is a normal word of contrast, but it's very emphatic. Verse 22 begins, but you have come. So he spent time painting this terrifying picture and he's saying, that's not your reality. Let me tell you what your reality is. Let me remind you of the privilege you have in Christ. Again, so that we'll continue walking forward so that we won't look to anything else. Verses 22 to 24, I'll read together. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What a contrast. Of this people that had come out of bondage and slavery and they're standing at the foot of a mountain in a huddled mass with a terrifying display of God's power and majesty and otherness right in front of them. And they were shaking in their boots and he's saying, that's not our reality. He says, but you've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Those aren't three different places. They're really just a a building up of a picture of what is our current possession and what will be our future reality. In the context, he's talking about these things as though we already have them, and we do. The, rea- the difference is, of course, we don't live and experience them yet. But these are our reality. Just like in Hebrews 4, it says, come boldly to the throne of grace. We aren't literally walking into heaven, but our prayers And our faith in Christ literally takes us into God's presence. In this context, even though we don't experience it yet, this is our home. Unlike the terrifying mountain, we've come to a place where the living God dwells. A place where a believer spiritually resides at the moment of salvation. And a place where one day we'll literally be with the Lord. It's a far contrast from that terrifying, distant picture of the Old Testament. Rather, this is an occasion where we're welcomed and ushered into a new place prepared specifically for those who will worship God forever. There's a description not only of where we're going, but of the The types of things we'll see there, the types of beings and creatures and people that we're going to see there. And I'm going to tie some things together because whenever you're dealing with these kind of texts, at times there are phraseologies in the Greek that even the experts have struggles to place together and how does it fit. And this is one of those rare occasions where I think the version that I use, the New American Standard, doesn't quite do as good a job. And my study leads me to believe that there's a better understanding of how these things connect together. But let's read at the end of verse 22 and verse 23. We're going to be in this city. Who else is there? It says, And to myriads of angels, 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. If you have other translations, sometimes that myriads of angels or the reference to angel is tied into something else. And the phrase that they're translating in this version says, and to myriads of angels to the general assembly. But I think the, for example, the ESV, it's not the only version, but I think the ESV, for example, provides a context and a translation that is truer to what is intended. There you see this in their version of verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That word translated to general assembly actually is a description of, it carries the wrong connotation, but of a, a celebration, of a party almost. It's a joyous gathering. In pagan times, it was used to describe when people would get together to worship their pagan gods and there'd be big celebrations and everything. Obviously, this isn't some pagan thing. This is talking about a gathering where the angels are there and it truly is a celebration. Unlike the picture of terror standing at the foot of Mount Sinai with God in all of his splendor, causing people to tremble and cry out. In this occasion, we're showing up to a celebration. This is our reality. And the angels that are there are the angels that did not sin. They didn't fall. And there's countless numbers. Tens of thousands. Ten thousands times ten thousand. We can't count the angels that are going to be there. The writer of Hebrews already talked a lot about angels in chapter 1. They're ministering spirits. But in this context, we're all in the same boat. We're all going to be in the presence of God. What's interesting to me is you dig a little bit deeper. And here he's saying that you don't have that, you have this. And this includes a bunch of angels that are going to be there. If we read other accounts, it's likely that at Mount Sinai, at that moment of terror, the angels were there as well. What we see in Deuteronomy 33, at the end of Moses' life, some of the last things he was writing down. We see in Deuteronomy 33, verses 1 and 2... The statement. Now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. Verse 2. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of ten thousand holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. It seems like on the day of terror, it's great likelihood that God was accompanied by the same myriads of angels. But what a different picture. Unlike that Old Testament circumstances, this is a joyous celebration. This is a great circumstance. It's not lightning and thunder and earthquakes and dreadful sounds. This is... Those worshiping God gathered together. It talks about the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. I think the best understanding is this is literally all of the church. Us who are still alive and those who have already passed away and us one day who will be here. All gathered together in the presence of God, the judge of all. And in this context, it's not the terrifying judgment of an unbeliever. This is just God welcoming His servants. 
God, the rewarder of his children, the greatest reward is we get to be with him, not fearful and crying out. God is still as righteous and as awesome and as terrifying and as majestic as he ever was. That hasn't changed. Unlike, though, the nation of Israel, when we're gathered together in this assembly, if you know Jesus Christ, we're not standing before God in our sin. The Israelites were still covered in their sin. They were standing there and they were exposed. Understand this, when we're standing there, we're covered with Christ's blood. We're covered in the righteousness of Christ. Does that mean we never sinned? Of course not, but it means we're not... Our sin isn't seen. Quite a contrast. We're standing there clothed in the righteousness of Christ, standing with all the other angels at a celebration that we couldn't comprehend. Now, there is a little bit of an interesting phraseology. As you look further in verse 23, it talks about God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And there's a sense in which that seems a little bit redundant because we've already talked about the church of the firstborn. I think whatever the nuances are, all of God's redeemed are going to be there. It's possible this is referring to old covenant saints like in Hebrews 11 who were on the other side of Christ. It's possible this is referring to those who have already passed away who are literally in the presence of God now. But the ultimate picture is this. Every one of God's servants, all of the redeemed, that's us, all of the angels that did not sin, the holy angels, all of us are gathered around. And the centerpiece of the entire book of Hebrews is the reason for our gathering. Verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood we which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Jesus, our great high priest, the one that the writer of Hebrews continually points to, the only mediator between God and man, will be the central focus of the celebration. I can tell you, I can't fully get my mind around how God the Father and God the Son, how that all interacts. But we won't have any confusion there. And we'll understand But the fact remains that rather than standing in the presence of Almighty God in terror, wondering if we're going to die, we'll be standing there at a celebration, rejoicing because our Savior is in front of us. And there's an allusion at the end of of Abel. Abel, you know, says Jesus' blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. The, The reality is the Old Testament saints were a great testimony, but they're nothing compared to the reality. Nothing trumps Jesus Christ. So what the writer has said is you don't have that terrifying picture where God says, come close, not too close. Where God says, I'm going to speak to you, but when I speak to you, you're going to put your hand over your ears and beg me to be quiet. When you're terrifying because you think I'm going to die and there's no hope for me because you hear lightning and thunder and the ground is shaking and the trumpets are louder and louder. 
I think there's going to be noise, but it's going to be a different type of noise. You're going to have angels that we can't even comprehend that are all gathered together. And every believer that ever existed is there. All of us are there. The Lamb of God is there. And what the writer is saying is that's your present reality. As you look at the world around you and you look at your struggle against sin and you look at all the things you have to overcome and perhaps you have to endure hardship and perhaps darker days are coming for us as Americans and things will get harder and there'll be persecution and all of that, what the writer is doing is he's painting a picture of saying it all pales in comparison. This is your present reality. Don't give up. You've already got your tickets. You might not be at the show, but you've got your ticket. It's a reality now. God exists outside of time. I've said it before, but I remember, I think the first time I ever heard this verse, Debbie talking about it, but there's Jesus saying, I, you know, I go to prepare a place for you. This is our place. And it's not a place of terror and fear, but rather it's a picture of Intimacy where we'll come into the presence of our Heavenly Father and we won't be saying to anyone, make it stop. No, we'll be marveling and we'll be joining in the praise and we'll praise the Lord forever. Again, as you look at something like this, you see how the writer of Hebrews over and over is saying, don't turn away. Don't don't give up. Press forward, press on, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. It's so easy to get distracted. Our world looks more like the mountain. Chaos and things to make us afraid and so much going on. And yet our present reality, if we think correctly from the scriptures, if we think on what's true, is that we have nothing to fear. We've got no reason to turn back. Every promise of God will be fulfilled. And we need to remind ourselves daily of the special privilege we have of the chosen children of God. Please join me as I close this teaching time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we can't fully comprehend the privileges we have in Christ. Lord, I think of the number of mundane and foolish things that distract my mind from the truths that I know. And Lord, I thank you for the repeated admonitions and pictures of the New Testament that show us that our citizenship is not really on this earth. Lord, I... I think I echo the hearts of many people here. I truly would rejoice if we were at that celebration today. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being here with my brothers and sisters at Lakeside. But Lord, we want to be with you. We long for the day when we don't have anything to do but to focus on you. Lord, when we're no longer struggling against our sin, when we're no longer struggling against the evil in the world, Lord, when that's all aside and we have rest in your presence. But Lord, for us that day is likely not today. 
and it may not be tomorrow, and it may not be next year, and it may not be in the next ten years. Lord, we pray that truths like you've included in this portion of Hebrews would resonate in our heart and would give us hope so that no matter what we face, no matter what we endure, we can keep our eyes fixed on you knowing that one day what you have prepared for us will make anything we've endured on this earth seem like nothing. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.